But by way of introduction of what I want to speak on this morning, it just was dropped into me right after I put my tie on. Everything just kind of came together. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you know that I have been talking for quite some time about good. What is good and what is good in the eyes of the Lord? What good can we be to this world? Um, and, and something uh, caught me this morning as I came up here and began the final preparation of just trying to write my notes as opposed to reading my notes. Um, I want you to look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And I discovered something in the process of, of looking at this passage that caught me by surprise. In Acts chapter 10, you have what would be called the Gentiles hear good news. And the Bible says, opening his mouth in verse 34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He doesn't show partiality because it would be unjust to do that, unjust. Uh, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Christ Jesus, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. And we're going to look at John in just a moment. And you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good. Now, I want you to underline that good right there. About doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, go over to the end of John. Now, he see, remember, he says here that all that John has said, you know all that he has done that John has said. Now, in John chapter 21, verse 25, is the epitaph of Jesus Christ. It says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Well, just by way of beginning, this word good that appears in Acts chapter 10 verse 38 is the only time that word appears in the entire Scripture. It is the only time. It does not appear any other way, either in definition or in sense. It stands alone. It is a one-time wonder. There is no, no cross-reference for it. If your Bible has a cross-reference, it is cross-referencing the English word good, not the Greek word good. And there, there are many Greek words for good. I have 11 pages here on good, about 15,000 words of where good is used in the, in the New International Common Dictionary of the New Testament. The New, the, whatever, Nikot is what it's called. And, uh, um, and right here in the yellow is the only place this word appears. It is the only time in the Bible. The word is uh, you are geteo. And what I want you to understand that in the Greek Bible, the, the Greek Old Testament, which is called the LXX, the Greek Old Testament, where they took the Hebrew and they converted it to Greek, they use it eight times. 
but that's a translation. Our Bibles are not translated from Hebrew to Greek to English. They come from Hebrew to English. And so this word is not anywhere else in the Bible. Okay? It, is only, it may be found in a translation, but this Greek word appears only this one time, and it needs to be remembered. It says this, Jesus went from place to place doing good, eugateo, and healing all those who were under the power of the devil. The universality, this is the definition, the universality of this beneficence and this victory over evil are on another plane from those of any person. So the good that is mentioned in Acts chapter 10, 38 stands alone. It is the ultimate summum bonum. The ultimate good. S-U-M-M-U-M-B-O-N-U-M. Summum bonum. It is the ultimate good. And it is the good that only Christ can do. Then when you look here in chapter 21 of John, you see, and there were many other things which Jesus did in which they are not written. Well, what did Jesus do? Everything Jesus did was what? Good. And I showed you a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night that every time good is mentioned in the Scripture in, re in reference to what a believer does, it is always referenced as good in the eyes of the Lord. It is never ever referenced as good in the eyes of man. So the only good we can do is to strive to do the good of Christ, and the only, and the only way to do that is in the power of Christ. And the only, only good there is to do in the power of Christ, to even get close to the good of Christ, is to do the good that is good in the eyes of God. All other good is not good compared to that. So there's a story. There is a story in Mark chapter 9 that I want you to look at, and we're going to exposit. And I want you to see where the disciples were able to do only so much until they rested on themselves. The question I want to pose to you is this, why, why do I still need Jesus? Why do I still need Jesus? I'm saved. I got Him. So why do I still need Him? He did His thing. He saved me. He has guaranteed salvation for me. He has guaranteed all of these things. He's given me all of this, this Word. Why do I still need Him? Check off the box. And I want to tell you something. I need Him more today than I needed Him when I was lost. Because when I was lost, I was blind. But now I see. And the more I see that I do, the more I realize I need Him and not me. As I go into the last half of my life, maybe the last three quarters of my life, I know that time is getting short. I have a message that is very important, but it's not good if it doesn't get there on time. Right? And I have the opportunities to do good or not. And so if I'm going to do things that are good, then I need, I need Him to show me what do I need to do to choose what He calls good and what I might call good.
And so I wrote some notes down uh, on this, and I'm going to exposit this text, and I'm going to try to share a plethora of things that I have for you. I've got five things for you to write down just to answer this question, but I want to start it with an illustration of need that maybe will resonate with some of you. As you know, in the mornings, you can probably find me at one place, usually every morning. You don't have to have a reservation, by the way, to come sit down with me. You're going to find me probably at that place. It's overrated coffee, overrated food, and overrated prices, but the service is pretty good. And some, it's even better <laughs> with some. And I was there, I walked in yesterday morning at 7.30 to sit down, and I, my standard procedure is I sit down, I order a cup of coffee, and I began reading the Word, and I began, it's a time of, of study for me. And, uh, and then my first appointment will show up, or however that works. But when I went there yesterday at 7.30, it was raining cats and dogs. And the manager was there, one server, and one cook. And the entire dining room middle section was full of people. And the manager was moving unflappably, serving tables. The girl that was waiting on all of those tables was overwhelmed. She kept coming to my table and said, can I cry? And I said, yes, when you get done serving these people. But don't bring me anything. You take care of them. And then I saw a little white equinox pull up out there, and I know the brunette in there. And I said, you need to get in here right now. Tips are waiting to go in your pocket. <laughs> and then a table of 18 people walked in. This is before 8. It's like, what are these people doing here? And so I got up and I went and helped the manager move those tables because it, there wasn't anyone to help him. And, uh, and I wouldn't, I'm not virtue signaling. I just want you to know, I mean, that's what you do. And I told him, I said, at our church, we believe you're a Christian if you know how to move tables and chairs. And I said, so this is a Christian duty. I mean, that's just, that's kind of a journey thing. We do not believe that world. And, uh, but it is an evidence of spiritual gift. And I sat there and watched them frantically try to take care of these people before Kara came in. And the staff, and, and plenty of staff had been scheduled for 7.30, but one of the other managers moved them to 8. And so what had happened, I couldn't do anything. I wanted to do something to help them. But I, I don't, I can't. There was nothing I could do. And I had a little bit of an anxiety attack because I was very much concerned for them because people were beginning to demonstrate the lack of patience. And there were people that were in hurries too. You know, they said, well, let's go get us a quick egg and get out of there. And so I, I just, I thought there, and I said, there's nothing I can do. I've done all I could do is help him move a table, and that was it. If they'd let me wait, I would. You want two eggs? Great, you're getting pancakes today. Here, eat it. You know? But there was nothing, there was nothing. And I felt, I felt needless because I couldn't meet a need. I felt hopeless. And I truly felt sorry for those folks that were absolutely perishing. And then what do they do? Kara comes in. They said, you get that 18 top over there. She's never done that. But she did it. And what she got in tips yesterday, she made more money than I did. 
all week. And, uh, and it, it was amazing to watch her, and then, then the staff started to come in, and then people, but Kara Grace had that top in five tables. And then they had to split it off. I mean, the restroom, restaurant was full at, by 8.15. It was extremely difficult to watch. And what they needed was help. There wasn't enough self-reliance to overcome the difficulty that they faced. And they were about to flounder, or founder, whichever one you want to call it. They were about to sink. And it was hard to watch it. Well, why do we still need Christ in our life? Well, let's talk about the lost people first. Why do they need Christ? Especially if they're happy. Why does anybody need Jesus Christ if they have plenty of money in the bank, they have the plenty of time to spend it, because I mean you're truly rich if you have time and money. They have all the time to spend it, and they have all the money in the bank to spend it, and they're happy, they're healthy, they have everything. Why would a person like that need Jesus? And, the, and they'll tell you, we don't. We have no need. We're completely self-supportive. We're completely self-sufficient. Some of you may have come to Christ through that way completely self-supportive, completely self-sufficient. They say, I just don't feel I need Christ. I've got everything I need. I have everything I need. Look at what I do. I mean, Warren Buffett gave $500 million to charity and said, I've secured my place in heaven. That's, uh, that's <laughs> he just gave it the wrong place. He should have given it to us. Right? And uh, we'd have a building, we'd have a crystal cathedral in Cook County is what we would have. If only a, a human being ever needed Jesus was for the purpose to be happy and for people to be happy, uh, well, they, they wouldn't need Jesus if that was the criteria. But here's the reason people need Jesus Christ today. It's the same reason there always has been. Um, there is a truly powerful, sovereign, holy, perfect God who is going to hold every man, woman, and child to account for the time they have spent on earth. And, when, and, and the standard before Him is perfection. Happiness will not buy you perfection. It may provide you the perfect life. You could call it utopia. It may provide those things for you. But it will not provide for you a ticket out of hell and the wrath to come. It won't do that. That's why, that's why people need Jesus today that are lost. Because for what, no other reason is there is a holy God that is going to call to account every action, word, deed, and thought in our life. And He's going to judge it. And we need more righteousness than we have. And by the grace of God and through Christ Jesus, that righteousness has been given through the person of Jesus Christ. It's not His righteousness, it's not my righteousness that will get me into heaven, not even my decision that will get me into heaven. It is His righteousness that will allow me to get into heaven. And so that's the message we, ta we take. Our culture really doesn't believe that God is going to hold them accountable for their lives. But God is really going to hold people accountable for their lives, whether they believe it or not. And we when we take the view that God's not going to really hold someone accountable for their lives, then therefore we take the risk that we no longer feel the threat of judgment, and judgment is coming. 
says the Lord. And so then to be happy as, as a claim, you can, you can say as you want. You can be as happy as you want, but there is payday someday, as the great preacher R.G. Lee said long ago. So the lost need Jesus, but what about the believers? And here's some things I just wrote down I'd like to give you to write down, perhaps, on why you still need Jesus today. And I think these will help you. And they all start with assurance of. There are many more reasons. And the way that I came across this is I, 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 I started my search the wrong way because I was looking for things Christians need in Jesus. And they're not any different than lost people need in Jesus. But there are some benefits to being saved in Christ as opposed to not saved. And so I just want to give you five. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm going to give you the Bible verses. You can go look them up later. But this will give you something to have. We will look very briefly at the text and then I'll wrap it up to, for you all together. So when I think about need and, and I think about my need, if Jesus wanted yesterday to do something for me, He would have made me certified and, and changed my clothes to all black and put on uh, anti-slippery shoes and I would have known how to work the iPad and I'd have been waiting tables yesterday for free. But that, that's not what happened. Uh, but, but they still had the need. I still have a need even though I'm a believer. And I'm realizing as the older I get, the more I need of Jesus. So here's five things I want to just give you. Number one, assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is based upon security of the believer. Assurance is a feeling, okay? It's a feeling. But when you think about, let me put it to you this way, you think about how much money you have in the bank. You're pretty sure you have this much money in the bank right now. But it is when you open your iPhone or your smart device or the computer and you look at your account online, then what do you know? how much money you have in the bank. And now your assurance is not what you're living off of, you're living off the security. Because you see it. It's a fact. One is a fact, assurance is a feeling. Well, I don't feel saved. Well, if you don't pursue holiness, you probably won't. Doesn't mean you're lost, but you probably won't. But, and probably if you're not pursuing holiness, you're not reading the Scripture. And as the Bible says, I write these things that you may know for certain you have eternal life in Christ Jesus. All right, so first of all is assurance of salvation. You can write down 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and Romans 8, 38 through 39. So what is this? I'm scared from the, uh, th this is where I am saved, not scared. I'm, this assurance of salvation means I am saved from my wrongdoing. Write that down. I am saved from my wrongdoing. That's why I still need Jesus. I'm saved from my wrongdoing. I have salvation, the assurance of salvation. Number two, the assurance of answered prayer. The assurance of answered prayer. Uh, it is the promise that God always hears me and always answers me, always. You could write down John 14, 6. In Matthew 7, 11. In Romans 8, 28. So the assurance of salvation, the assurance of prayer. Here's another one, the assurance of victory. The assurance of victory. Um, this is where our battle against evil in the world will result 
in victory. The assurance of victory. So you can write down James 1.14 and 1 Corinthians 10.13. John 1.14, 1 Corinthians 10.13. The battle over evil in the world is going to be overcome. Now I want you to all understand something. Remember this. We're not going to win. We're not winning in this world. We win in the next, which is the only world that matters. I, we will be defeated here, but <laughs> it will be but like that much. Because our calling is not to win here. We're not here to form a more perfect earth. We're building a kingdom that is both graciously, gradually being revealed, and one that's going to come apocalyptically. And we're going to see it, and we're going to be a part of that. And it's so amazing that when you look at the apocalypse and what happens, Jesus comes with all of the witnesses that are coming with Him, and He is the only one with a sword drawn. No one else needs it. Why are they, why are they coming as an army dressed in white? Because they're coming to bear witness of, of this very promise right here, all to the assurance of victory. We are going to share in the victory. We're going to be in heaven forever saying, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, that's my Jesus Christ battle cry. <laughs> like that. Got it? If Kelly was in here, she could do that. Go team. Number four, assurance of forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, I write these things that you may know, that if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all rotten righteousness. Isaiah 59, verse 2, and Romans 8, 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, 2, and Romans 8, 1 and 2. This promise is based upon the condition that we confess our sin to the Lord, our need of the Lord. And last of all, assurance of guidance. If we need anything today more from Jesus, it's this concept of guidance. How to act wisely, how to act temperately, how to act courageously, how to act justly. Justice is the place where you, wisdom is where you're learning what good is. Justice is where you are showing good. That's the summum bonum, the highest virtue is justice, of doing good, showing no partiality, just as it said there in Acts 10. And so the assurance of guidance, Romans 8, 14, and 1 Corinthians 2, 13. So this is the question on this one. Who do you turn to when you don't know what to do and when to do it? Who do you turn to when you don't know what to do and when to do it? Where do you turn? We need this more than anything. It's Jesus. The need of Christ Jesus because every one of these verses speaks specifically of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ. Who does the Holy Spirit turn our hearts to? Jesus. That's his, that is His privilege. It's a spotlight ministry. That's what He does. He does not use us to glorify us. He uses us to glorify the Son. His ministry is all about Jesus. The Father represents all that is good. Jesus represents it in its portion to us. Its power, to, its, its apportionment to us in the Holy Spirit is the power behind it. But it is Christ. We need Jesus. Guys down there in Dallas, one of the big churches say, no, we don't. We need the Holy Spirit because they believe in a concept that God works in different forms 
throughout time, and right now He only works as the Holy Spirit. God is not the Father. God is not the Son anymore. God is the Holy Spirit. And so you have a complete, total misuse, misunderstanding of, of what the Holy Spirit's all about. We need Jesus. And so let me show you this very quickly as I don't have a lot of time left. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, I want you to see this passage. I'm not going to read all of it because of time's sake, um, but I want you to begin in verse, I'll, I'll give you the context of what's going on. The idea here simply is in Mark 9 is that the Christian life is a life of faith and, and uh, you know, we're told to walk by faith and not by sight. And uh, uh, Christians trust in God whom they have not seen. We trust in a Christ whom has not revealed Himself to us physically. We believe in a Holy Spirit that hasn't seen and we embrace death and resurrection that we have not seen and we trust in justification that we have not seen and we look forward to eternal life which we have not seen. We are saved by a faith that we cannot even see. We are sanctified and we hold this hope of glory. And we have a faith that's not perfect. It's a not perfect faith, but it is a sufficient faith. I want you to write that down. Your faith is not perfect, but it is sufficient. And the reason it's sufficient is because of your need of Christ. Your faith is sufficient. It's not perfect, but it is sufficient. No one has perfect faith. No one does. And if they had it, then they're a liar. No one has perfect faith. Faith is not perfect. It is sufficient. It is not because of human ability. It is the gift of God, which is what? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It is not a blind faith, but a proven anchored faith that is anchored what? In the testimony of the Word of God. Right? Does all make sense? Alright, so with that context, this, this passage right here can be found in Matthew 17 or in Luke 9. And you have the story of the demon-possessed boy. And unfortunately, when you hear this sermon preached today, that's the focus, is the demon possession and particularly the demon. Well, we know what happens. The disciples come up here to Him and there's a large crowd and some of the scribes are arguing in verses 14 through 18. I'm just telling you, just follow along and listen to me. They're arguing with the disciples. They're on their own and it turns out it hadn't gone well. They've shown up there. It's like Cracker Barrel. There's nothing they can do. They're sitting there doing everything they know how to do and they have already done this once. They've already done this in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. And so now they're at this thing and uh, the scribes are making fun of them and they're, they're frustrated. They're upset. Uh, they're on their own and it's not going well. And so Jesus and three other apostles Apostles show up and they come there and when it said and when the entire crowd found him they were amazed and began running up to greet, greet him and Jesus asked like he always does and I don't know really why Jesus asked questions he already knows the answers so the questions he's asked are for our benefits to know if we know our own answers and he says what are you discussing with them and uh, it it in the word there means they're arguing and the crowd answered him and said teacher uh, I, a man in the crowd said I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute and whenever it seizes him it slams him in the ground he foams at the mouth he grinds at his teeth and he stiffens out okay so you have this whole concept of of this things happening and up to this point the disciples have been trying to cast out that demon and, uh, and in fact in, in Matthew 17 verse 15 the description used by Matthew in that text who is writing to the Jews uses the term lunatic. 
he's a lunatic is the, the word that's used there. And so what do you have? You have the, the first thing I would have you just write down, and I, I, I'll give it to you like this. I'm, I hate it that my notes are this way. You have in verses 14 through 18 the demon's possession. The demon's possession. And then the next thing you have is the disciple's perversion. And look at verse 18. Verse 18 beginning with, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus says, Bring me the boy. So you have the perversion of their faith because something has happened here. They're not able to do what they're supposed to do. Now remember, your faith is not perfect. This is a demonstration of imperfect faith. But in this case, in this particular case, it's insufficient because there's something that stands in the way. It's not sufficient because something stands in the way. And I'm going to show it to you. In verses 20 through 24, you have the desperate plea. The desperate plea of the father, look what he says, they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth, and he asked his father, how long has it been happening to him? Now this is how I imagine this, look at me, I think this boy sitting there flopping on the ground, foaming at the mouth, and Jesus going, hmm, he's, he's really flopping around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus is completely calm. Jesus is totally calm. He's not, oh my God, call 911, what are we going to do? He's not doing any of that. He's completely calm, and that boy is having a fit. All right, verse 21, and he asked the father, how long has he been this way? And he said, from childhood. And the father's standing there going, uh-huh, aren't you going to do something? Aren't you, uh, hello? And verse 22, and it's often thrown him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. But, you but if, underline that, but if, you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, now that's a whole other sermon right there. But if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So underline that. That's a word of promise for you, but we're not going to even touch that. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. There's a whole other sermon right there. That's another sermon. And I'm not giving them all to you today. Now, so what happens? You have this desperate plea that takes place. If you can, was not a question though. I want you to understand something. This was a, this was an explanation of surprise. In his widespread ministry amongst the sick and the casting out of demons, he, he had the ability to cast out this demon and this boy. Why would they ask him? And then he says, all things are possible for him who believes. And that is the lesson Jesus chooses to teach in the passage. But it is not our purpose today. And he's overcome with emotion. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And what he asks for is help me of my unbelief. And then we take up our subject, the need of Christ, here at this point. And I can put my notes away. Verses 25 through 29. 25 through 27 speak of divine power. So if you've outlined what I've said, I'll give you an outline for the text. There is now beginning verse 25 is the divine power. Verse 25 he says, When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. And crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion. See it took time. It wasn't instantaneous. It took time. 
it was a fight. I know of some things that have taken time that we have prayed for in the past, and God has chosen in that time to bring it about. And it is an amazing thing that soon I'm sure you will know about. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions that came out, the boy became so much like a corpse uh, of mo that most of them said he's dead. He's lying there just still. And Jesus took him and raised him, and he got up. Now, what has happened here? The boy has been delivered, and the boy has fallen some say dead. It doesn't matter if he was dead. He looked dead from our perspective. And so there is a question is, did Jesus do the healing and a resurrection in this place? Well, all we do know is this. The boy that fell down was a different boy that got up. Right? He had been touched by who? Christ Jesus. What did the boy need when his father came? He needed Christ. Now, were there ministers there for Christ? Yes, but why did the ministers get it wrong when they had already done it once before? How come all of a sudden they came to this boy that's flopping there and foaming at the mouth, throwing himself in the fire, how come they could not deliver him when in fact they had delivered others? Something has changed. Something has changed in them. And this is what I wish to say to us all. They forgot they still needed Jesus. They were looking on yesterday's glory, and they thought they could do it, and they couldn't do it. Because Jesus shows us something, we will always need Him. And I want you to notice they weren't doing it in His name. That's not what I'm saying here. They're not trying to deliver that boy. In the name of Jesus, I command you to come forth and I send you to a dry earth place. I've come to grips with that is not appropriate prayer. They were praying in Jesus' name. They were not praying to the person of Christ Jesus. And today what is so wrong with so many churches, they're praying to the wrong person in the Trinity. They're claiming the power of the wrong person of the Trinity, who that person in the Trinity, all of his effort and every emotive, emotional, promotive thing is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not just the name. There is something about that name, Jesus, Jesus. You know that song? But we also sing, I need thee every hour. I was thinking about all the hymns. I almost consulted the hymn book this morning to go through the verses and actually put the sermon point together. But I didn't need to. The Lord just dropped it in. So let me, let me summarize it for you this way. The reason people have the difficulties we have today is because we're looking for the wrong kind of good. We're looking to do good in the sight of man. We're looking to do good so that other people might think that our God is good. We are incapable of that kind of good. God doesn't need help. Jesus Christ 
is the ultimate picture of good. And as I showed you Wednesday night, of all of the virtues, the cardinal virtues of, of temperance, of wisdom, and courage, and justice, all virtues fall under justice. It is the greatest of all virtues. And if you compared it to the virtue of love, what do we know about justice? It shows no partiality. What is the divine love of God? It shows what? No partiality. And what are we called when we believe? Justified. And we're trying to do the work. We're trying to create the church. We're trying to create the environment of all these things. And all we're doing is creating what appeals to the sight of man. As I, I, the reason I didn't stand this morning and sing as I listened to you, I heard something for the first time in America as a pastor, now 21 years, that I have never heard before. In the humble, cramped worship we have in here, I heard the zealous singing in faith of the people of God like I only hear it overseas amongst people who don't have it so well. And have always said, I wish I could reproduce in America what I hear overseas on mission trips. Well, the beautiful thing is I didn't reproduce any of it. God has decided it is time I will deposit it. And that's what I heard this morning. No stress. Nothing. You learned a new song. You, I, don't, I don't think I learned it, but you learned a new song and you learned some other things. And, and, but we sang all the verses of Great is Thy Faithfulness, all of them. And none of, nobody said the cows in the corn, the cows in the corn. And you think about all of the things that we think are good, and then we think we have to go add emotively, emotionally to the experience of Christ when what we're seeking is good and we're finding Christ. Because in Christ is our all in all. So here are the disciples who have now journeyed with Jesus Christ for two years. They have been given this power. They have been sent out in 72. They've gone out without money, without a change of clothes and anything. They go out and do these magnificent miracles. They come back. They tell Jesus all this stuff has happened. And Jesus being a guy at the table with them sitting there drinking coffee, he says, listen, I'm amazed at what you did. And I'm so amazed at what you did. I even saw God send Satan out of hell. And, he's, and what Jesus is comparing it to, he says, this was maybe for him in his, emo, in his human state the most amazing thing he'd ever seen is when God sent the demons and a third of them, sent them to hell. And, G, and Jesus is not one-upping the disciples, when, the 72, when he comes back. He's sharing their experience. They watched him do it. They did it with him. And then he watched them do it. Then he sent them out. Well, now they have all that experience behind them. And they've gone out there to, the, to this boy. And they have run out of steam. Because the problem is they are depending on themselves. And friend, when you depend on yourself, you can't do any good. You can do good in the eyes of God, in the eyes of man, but you can't do good for the eyes of the Lord. You cannot do the good, even achieve the goodness, or try to achieve the goodness of Christ, because all the good that Christ did, what was the Christ, what was the good that he did? It was the good that he had seen his father do. So the good is godly good. 
And to be godly, the Scripture says, is to love the Son like the Father loves the Son. That's in 1 John chapter 2. Be careful using that term godly. In fact, just don't use it. Because until you love Jesus the way the Father loves Jesus, that is the definition in the Bible of what a godly person is. We have used too many terms. So here's, here's how I want to show you this. And I, I'm finished. i got two minutes left. Self-reliance, write this down, self-reliance in Christian discipleship cannot coexist in anyone who truly follows the Savior. It cannot coexist. We're not talking about the self-reliance that, that uh, brings about a strong worth ethic where a person labors hard in order to provide for himself and his family or herself and her family. We're not talking about a self-reliance that is a that is a, that has all noble things that are good, right, and just. We're referring to the kind of self-reliance. Write this down. I'm referring to the kind of self-reliance that does not turn to Jesus for strength. Self-reliance that turns to Jesus. For strength that does not turn to Jesus for strength. This was the obstacle that stood before those nine disciples and the boy with his illness. It's that easy. It's that plain and simple. See out there at the Cracker Barrel yesterday, they were they were they were struggling under circumstances they could not control. And as best as they could control them and try, they were not going to make it. But God, would have God helped them? I don't know that He would or not, but about 8.10 the folks came in. And, it, it, and about by 9 o'clock it started to calm down. And in any of you who ever waited tables, you know what I'm talking about. They call it being in the weeds. And uh, and so I want you to get this. We have an example and an object lesson right here for our benefit. And that is, this is what happens to a Christian person that believes they no longer need Jesus. They have come to a level of maturity or of ability or understanding that they no longer whether they willingly do it or not is not what I'm talking about. But they come to a place where they forget they still need Christ. And the older we get, the more we realize, I think, I hope we do, that in Christ the more we, we learn and grow, the more we realize we need Him. So I wrote these things down this morning for me, and then I'll, I'll close I still need Jesus for salvation. I still need Him. It's not because I can lose it. But I need Jesus to save me from something more sinister than my sin in my life. It's myself. Because if I'm weighed down by my emotions or other things, I'm no good to you. I'm no good to anyone. I'm no good to him. I just don't feel like getting out of bed today. What, how's the, how are they going to hear unless you get out of the bed? 
So the idea is there's salvation. I still need Jesus for grace. Don't you? I do. I still need Jesus today for righteousness, not because I'm a Christian, but because I'm in Christ. See, this is something we, the, our, our whole nation has forgotten this. They have confused being a Christian to being in Christ. All people that are in Christ are Christians, but not all Christians are in Christ. Now, if you said that 50 years ago, people wouldn't believe that. Because some of you are sitting here saying, well, a Christian is in Christ. No, someone claims to be a Christian. They're not a Christian. I, I, listen, do you want to know how, how we know this is absolutely true? Because there's a book that has recorded it. It's so important God doesn't want to forget it. And in the event that He could forget it, He's decided not to forget it, but He would write it down, and the ink He used was the blood of His Son. And so the reality of it is, I, don't, I, need, I need the righteousness of Christ, not because I'm a Christian, but because I'm in Christ. I need comfort because I'm in Christ. I need comfort as a, as a believer. I need His example. I, need to, I, need to, I think Jesus loved dogs. And I think Jesus loved kids. And I think He loved people. And I think, he, I think Jesus could tell a very clean whopper too. Probably a good joke, and if he'd heard it a hundred times, he'd tell it again. He would, he would laugh at it just as hard, like you do at mine, like Shebrews is not Hebrews because Hebrews the coffee, that kind of thing. Example: See, laughed, and you've heard that for ten years. To worship in spirit and truth, I need Christ to be able to worship in spirit and truth. I need him to worship. So it won't matter if I sing out of a hymn book or or the the room looks like uh, Billy Bob's. I need Jesus to worship him in spirit and truth. I need Jesus' intercession. Still to this day, He makes intercession for us as He sits on the right hand of God, the hand of judgment. Those are just some things I wrote down. So here's the thing. In conclusion, in conclusion, what happened with that boy there was sort of a death and resurrection that released that boy from needing his father's prayer, from needing the disciples' prayer, from needing his physicality to be changed and his condition. What changed is he was raised up and he, he needed Jesus. And Jesus was there. And he took Jesus fully and finally, and Satan was defeated. And Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated. Say that. Satan is defeated. Quit talking about him. He doesn't deserve any word, any mention from our lips. Greater is He that is in us than He is in the world. And so Christ's followers need to rely on His power over Satan and His death and resurrection in order to defeat the enemy. And so you've got to come to grips with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is it. We must cast off all self-reliance in spiritual warfare with direct statement that, de that the demon who possessed the boy could only be driven out by prayer. Jesus says at the end, He says these words, He says, He says, look what He says, Why could we not have driven it out in verse 28? And He said to them, This kind cannot come out by any other way but by prayer. What does that mean? If you're going to pray truthfully, prayer is an act of what? dependence on the Lord you need. They did not do that. And that's what stood in their way. Christ's followers must rely on His power 
And perhaps they thought they had the authority to eliminate the need to rely on Jesus for success in fighting the enemy because they had His name. They had His name. And so they went about commanding and declaring and jumping up and down and forbidding and calling out and all of that and none of it worked. And Christ's exhortation is to prayer and it shows that His followers remain ever dependent on Him for every spiritual victory. I wish to say in the face of God that there is no Christian that is a true follower of Christ that would ever say that absolute dependence on Jesus is op optional. No genuine follower of Jesus would ever say that dependence on Him is optional. But that doesn't mean they wouldn't do it. It is easy for believers to go through their day as if they are under their own power. And all I wish to say as I finish is please remain aware constantly of your need of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for its delivery, the simplicity, efficacy, and efficiency. Almighty God, we leave it to the power of Your Spirit to bring to recollection the things that are most important for us even now as we will soon rise to stand and leave. Where it is our prayer, Almighty God, that we may be about doing good that the world would call us do-gooders. But more importantly, the world would say, why are you the way you are, that we may give testimony of the one in whom we depend upon. And whether our bank accounts are full or empty, our futures are bright or bleak, whether our health is good or not so good or grave, Father, we know that in Christ Jesus we have all that we need. And we pray, Father, that we would be found needing Thee every hour. Help us with our forgetfulness that we not ever forget as believers we need Him more now than we ever had. Not for our nation, not for our families, not for our jobs, not for anything. We need Him more than ever for you, for you. And I thank you that you will answer this prayer in the affirmative because it is your will. And so therefore may we go likewise. In the precious name of Christ Jesus, amen.